1: From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis. Thank you for being here. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then a concert flyer may just be worth a thousand songs. Coming up today is designer, editor, and publisher Henry Owings. He recently took a deep dive into local music history through the medium of concert flyers. And his new book, Plus One Atlanta covers venues and shows from 1962 to 2003. Later in the hour, City Lights host Lois Reitzes catches up with Atlanta Symphony concert master David Coucheron to celebrate the life and legacy of cellist Christopher Rex, who passed away earlier this spring. But first, The Atlanta Fringe Festival is known for showcasing things off the beaten path, and this year they are back in person celebrating their 10th anniversary. The festival's executive producer, Diana Brown, and artist Flora Lee recently joined Lois Reitzes over Zoom to discuss this year's event. Brown began by explaining how Fringe has evolved over the decade.
2: We've mainly just tried every year to connect with our artists we're just a very artist centric organization so our very first thought our first priority is what are the artists like about this what do they want to change about it what would they like to see more of and so every year we're always asking our artists and then our audience especially too about what can make their experience better. And so every year we're just refining and refining and trying to make it the best that it can possibly be.
3: Hmm.
4: This year's festival is supposed to be the biggest and most ambitious yet. What's in store?
2: Oh, we have 20 shows from all over the country. We have 22 original audio productions for our Fringe Audio Festival. And we have free family-friendly performances on Saturday morning just for the kids. So that's kind of our first theater for young audiences that we've ever done. We've done some stuff for like maybe eight to 10 to teenage range, but we haven't really tried to welcome toddlers before. So I'm very excited about that.
4: Great. Flora, the title of your one-woman show, Sadek 1965, is a riff on the provincial city in South Vietnam, Sadek. Is this where the story takes place?
5: So yes, SedEC is, um, as you mentioned, a little a small town in the heart of the Mekong Delta, and it's a very important place in my show because it is where everything started back in 1965, and it's also where my six-week solo motorcycle trip ends and where the show ends. So it's an important place because it brings the story full circle.
4: What is significant about 1965?
5: Oh, so in May 1965, my father who grew up in Vietnam in the Mekong Delta meets his high school sweetheart, a young woman by the name of Hien. She's then 16 and apparently the most beautiful girl in the school. And my father is 19 at the time. And their love story features in my show as I'm trying to make sense of who my father was. He was a very mysterious um, and difficult man. And my show is about me trying to make sense of our relationship and going back to Vietnam to piece together the story of his life. And that is, by extension, my story.
4: Can you tell us if you felt closure and satisfaction about the story of your father and your relationship to him? After your six week journey,
5: mm, That's a beautiful question. I did find closure, Lois, but I didn't find it where I thought it would be. When I set on this motorcycle trip initially, I thought I had a mystery. On my hands and in, in a story to piece together and i thought i was going to vietnam to find the facts um, and my by then my father had already passed away so it was too late to ask him the questions and anyway um with the character that he was i would probably have never had the answers from him but what i found and the, the, i found the closure not so much in in the truth or in the facts i found it in my own journey And even trying to understand by going to Vietnam, by seeing the country and by meeting some of my family members when I arrived in Sadek, where they still live today on my father's side. So, yes, I did find closure, but through my own action and through my own journey and not so much by the history or or the facts.
4: Have you remained in touch with those relatives you visited and found?
5: Yes, I have. There's a significant language barrier because um, my father's side, uh, most of them do not speak English. I do have a cousin, however, who was wonderful to me when I visited Cedric. He had, I would say, 20 words of English, but just enough <laughs> so that we could get around. And he was very kind to bring me to places that were significant to my father then such as the house where he grew up, the school where he met Hien, and the shrine where my paternal grandparents are buried.
4: This must have been incredibly emotional for you.
5: Yes, it was in, in, in so many ways. And when I finished the motorcycle trip, I was emotionally saturated and I couldn't yet make sense of everything that had happened and something that I talk about in the show. The integration of all that experience happened over the years, And Louis, it took me eight years to write this show. I've been wanting to tell this story ever since I completed the motorcycle trip, but it took me eight years to sit down and write this show. And I think that those eight years were necessary for me to really integrate everything that I had experienced.
4: Oh, my. Eight years sounds like such a long time. Though in comparison to the number of years of his absence in your life, It seems you worked through a great deal in those eight years.
5: I certainly did. I certainly did. And having this wonderful opportunity to rewrite my own story and being able to tell this story on stage, thanks to the Atlanta French Festival, is invaluable.
4: Mm. Diana, the festival kicks off with a benefit performance, five fifths of back to the future.
2: (laughs) Yep. (laughs) What is
4: the story behind this show?
2: It is my favorite show of all time. Basically, this is actually a fringe fundraiser that a couple of other fringe festivals have done, where they kind of take some story that everybody knows a classic film, or they'll do Alice in Wonderland or Wizard of Oz or something like that. Just something that people know all the beats of. And then they break it into five parts and we give it to five different local performance groups to interpret however they want, which is great because they can be really free with it since people really know the story that hopefully know the story really well. So they can kind of do whatever they want with their section. And then in one night we come together and see the most unique retelling of all time. And uh, our Fringe really loves classic 80s movies. So, so far, that's what we've chosen to do. We've done Karate Kid and Princess Bride. And then this year, we're doing Back to the Future. And it's always just been such a fun, weird, exciting, creative, uh, amazing show. And it's such a wonderful representation of what Fringe is all about. What do the ticket
4: sales benefit
2: The Fringe Festival. So at the Fringe, our artists, our lineup artists get to keep 100% of their ticket sales. So this is actually the only show in the entire festival where we get to keep the ticket money. So, Ah. It goes right to the Festival Coffers for next year.
4: Great. There is a cash prize offered to the artists participating in the Fringe Fest. Who will vote for the favorite shows in each category?
2: Well, we have a couple different ones. So we have a Critics' Choice Award. And um, with that one, we've put together a panel of judges who have expertise in all the many varieties of performance that will be seen on stage. So we try to get circus people to come see the circus shows and dancers and choreographers to see the dance shows and writers and actors and storytellers and theater professionals to see, you know, the solo shows and stuff like that so that there's some kind of expertise involved um, and they score the shows and just the overall top score gets the top prize. And then there's a producer's choice award that we at the, uh, the Fringe Festival Steering Committee choose. With that, it's more about how did they do with their producing? You know, did they, did they follow all our policies? Did, they, uh, did we see them really marketing really well? Or, um, are they really embodying the fringe spirit the week that they're there? And, you know, stuff like that. And then uh, there's two audience choice awards as well, so the audience gets to pick the winners of those. And we have those split up in solo and small ensemble and then large ensemble categories, so you get to pick one of each.
4: Fringe Audio features artists who tell stories through radio theater, and most of them at the festival are world premieres. Would you highlight just a couple of shows that will be available to stream on atlantafringe.org?
2: Absolutely. Let's see. There are 22 this year, and they sound really amazing. The quality of the Fringe Audio shows have just gone up and up every single year. One that we love is actually a children's podcast called Ask Dear Abby, D E E R. <laughs> so, they have lots of fun animal puns and cool advice, and they're really fun. And they're actually doing a live version of their show as well at our family fringe on Saturday morning, Saturday the 21st. And then there's a really cool sci fi show called Civitanum Seven by Bassworks. There's also a Fringe Audio Critics' Choice Award. And our last year's Critics' Choice Award Theater in the Dark did a Moby Dick production that was just fabulous. And this year they're doing A War of the Worlds. So I'm very excited to hear theirs. They're just incredible writers and performers.
4: Great. This is for both of you. How have the Last two years of cancellations and virtual offerings made you appreciate in-person performance all the more.
2: Wow, so much, so much more. I guess in 2020, when we, when we had to cancel our 2020 festival, we fortunately still had Fringe Audio, so we were able to still do some programming in 2020. And then in 2021, we did a virtual festival festival, And part of it was, you know, we wanted to make sure there was some audience interaction. So we did watch parties and we did live shows and we really tried to put a lot of community together with it. But it's just not the same as being in the room together and exchanging that energy with the performers on stage, with everyone else in the audience, feeling those vibes and that mood, having those lights dim and really feeling yourself put somewhere else than you normally are. It's just so different to be a watching a show on screen and you just know very clearly that you're in your own living room. <laughs> it's much harder to transport yourself. And I don't know why it's so much easier to watch a movie and take yourself somewhere else. But with theater, I feel like the connection with the performer is just so, it's just an energy transfer that can't be replicated. And so mm-hmm. I know I'm incredibly excited to get back to that feeling that that exchange with with the audience flora
5: well i would not have a show if there hadn't been a pandemic Um, when the pandemic started started in 2020 I was uh, single and living in a 500-square-foot apartment in Washington, DC. I also had this large translation project I had been working on, where I've been trying to translate all the love correspondence I had found after my father passed away, over 600 letters that him and Hien had written between 1965 and 1971. And I had it had t- t- taken me many years to translate and try to read that correspondence and understand what the letters were saying. And I had a team of 13 Vietnamese transcribers and translators working on this project. But then it was time to read those letters and thanks to the pandemic and having absolutely nothing else to do, I was able to complete this massive translation project and and I read what um, turned out to be over 1400 pages of love letters written at the time of the Vietnam War.
3: Oh
4: my, Floralie. Diana Brown, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so very
1: much.
2: Thank Thank you. you so much. Appreciate you.
1: Atlanta Fringe Festival executive producer Diana Brown and artist Flora Lee. This year's festival occurs from May 16th through the 22nd at venues in and around Little Five Points and Candler Park. More information is on our website, wabe.org. In a moment, we'll learn some Atlanta music history through the medium of concert flyers with designer and publisher Henry Owings. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE, I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Wrights, thank you for listening. Once upon a time, before the internet was widely used, before Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok, Atlanta indie musicians had to take it to the streets to advertise their upcoming shows. In lieu of sending out an invite to their thousands of online friends, local bands would create eye-catching flyers and staple them up all over town. Atlanta author, designer, publisher, and producer Henry Owings recently compiled a collection of these memory-inducing images called Plus One Atlanta, concert ephemera from a storied metropolis. Henry joins me now via Zoom. Henry, welcome to City Lights.
0: Kim, it is my pleasure.
1: Well, for the unfamiliar, would you explain what the phrase Plus One means and why it's significant?
0: When I came up with this idea, I wanted to have a a title that was kind of inside baseball. It basically means, you know, can you put me on the list plus one? It's sort of like a nod and a wink to kind of like Rock Club 101.
1: Indeed. So this collection spans the years of 1962 to 2003. And -hmm. wow, that seems like it would have been a huge undertaking. What inspired you to indulge in this challenge?
0: Uh, Well, um, I don't know what you've been doing the last couple of years, but um, I I certainly wasn't going and seeing any shows. (laughs) So uh, I was working on a box set for the Athens Band Pylon, and it gave me a glimpse into all of this stuff that, you know, as a fan of Georgia music, I, I had always heard about, but I had never seen. And so it's one thing to talk to somebody who talks about seeing the Stooges at Richards in uh, Midtown or or whatever, but it's another thing to find these artifacts. Mm. And so I just wanted to actually hold and scan them. And uh, just more than anything, I just wanted to get it right. And so, you know, that my inner editor came out, Uh, And a couple of actual editors came out (laughs) and uh, helped me try and explain 50 years of music in this town.
1: It's amazing. And you're doing it through essays and through the visuals of these flyers. I read in your introduction that you scanned over 13,000 to compile this book. How did you choose which ones to include?
0: (laughs) That's a really good question. what i wanted to do was show atlanta i didn't want to show like my my personal biases i wanted to show warts and all i wanted to show the the cool bands i wanted to show the the lame bands and it's not incumbent upon me to say which is which i think one of my strengths as an editor is i didn't lean on anybody in particular my goal to try and hit as much as I could and not leave anything into question. You know, like as much as I've heard people over the years talk about The Point and the Metroplex and, you know, a lot of places that were here before I was in Georgia. Could I have put more 688 in there? Could I have done more with, you know, like Rose's Cantina? Of course, but that wasn't the point. I wanted to show C.W. Shaw's and That you know, PJ's Nest and the the Rec Room and 485 Robinson and the I Defy House and C11, and 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 then when you start going into the sixties, it just offered more opportunities to tell the story. It was it was so much fun to do.
1: Yeah, and you did a really good job of getting out of your personal bubble of, you know, what you are really into musically. And to do so, you had to put a call out to ask people to send you these flyers. Was there any sort of a trust issue that came up with borrowing like the people's precious keepsakes?
0: Never. I think what I wanted to do was put people at ease. If somebody wasn't precious about it, great, but I just wanted to scan it and return it. I've I've kind of largely been very allergic to holding on to this stuff. I don't mm. want to hold on to it. If somebody gives it to me, it goes to a museum. If it's from Atlanta, it's going over to Emory. And if it's from Athens, it goes to UGA. And uh, this is profoundly intimate memories that people are sharing with me. And I take it very seriously
1: well this book contains so much atlanta history and it includes essays from well-known musicians and music lovers that at one time or another they were very connected to their decades music scene and the first essay is from comedian and actor david cross and he explains how the atlanta music scene helped him find his tribe across from that essay is a 1983 flyer from a club called the Nightery that features David Cross opening for RuPaul and the U-Hauls and the now explosion. Would you speak to the Nightery and its place in Atlanta indie music history?
0: Happily, to those that are driving around, those around Atlanta, the Nightery is where Eats is currently. It's the same building, same everything. You know, like David grew up in Roswell And his very first gig where he was paid money to perform was that show at the NiteRy. and RuPaul was not RuPaul trademark. It was RuPaul.
1: Just another character in our scene.
0: Yeah. And Atlanta music scene more so than say Chapel Hill or Birmingham or New Orleans it was the place in the South where, you know, other than heteronormative males and females, they want, came here because they felt like they had a home. And RuPaul was one of them, and so was Benjamin from Smoke and Opal Fox Quartet. So were everybody from the Now Explosion, Tom Zerilli. Uh, I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on and on. Like they all, kind of created this scene out of nothing. I love that all of them have been so just profoundly generous and hospitable and uh, patient with all of my questions because, I mean, I moved to Georgia in 1991. Once I got here, I was totally fine figuring everything out, but the stuff from the 60s and 70s, I have to ask the questions. I mean, again, I'm going to stress this. This project has been a heck of a lot of fun.
1: Some of the other essays in the book from musicians like Jared Swilly of The Black Lips, Kelly Hogan, Tom Branch of Insane Jane, the essays seem to vary a lot in scope. So I'm very curious, what did you ask them to write about in order to produce such eclectic writing?
0: Um. I, I used to publish a magazine called Chunklet. And so my ability to kind of like put on my, my editor's hat was not as difficult as it would be for some. When I talked to Bill from Mastodon to write the afterword to the book, what I wanted him to do was kind of present that they really worked hard. They worked like a Herculean amount and they would never say that. But I think the the proof of, of that is their success. Uh and uh, you know, like with Jared, I mean, I've known Jared since he was like 16, 17. I used to sneak him into shows. I wanted him to talk about that, what it was like for him to be like the the dum-dum from out in the burbs and to come in to to see shows, go to 513. All of that, you know, one person in particular that I want to make sure gets a shout out is uh, Lady Claire Butler from The Now Explosion, who did a piece, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, like that late 70s, early 80s scene in Atlanta, which was, I mean, kids in a candy store. I told her, I said, I want you to talk about what it was like to be an original freak in Atlanta, like one of the original weirdos. Same thing with Murray Silver, he uh, booked the Grateful Dead in Reynolds town when he was 16 in 1970. And so I wanted him to write about what it was like as a 16 year old to pick up Jerry Garcia and the band from the airport.
1: Can you summarize the story that Murray shares about the Atlanta water supply and driving Jerry Garcia around town?
0: Yes. What Murray has told me is that he picked him up at the airport in his parents' station wagon, and then Jerry said, take us over to Georgia Tech, man. And this is 1970. So Murray Murray in his his parents' station wagon waits in his car, and then Jerry Gar... It's like something out of a movie. Jerry Garcia turns the corner, and he's holding what looks like a big clump of bed sheets, but upon closer inspection, it was all blotter paper.
1: And he went to Georgia Tech because why?
0: Well, they went to Georgia Tech for two reasons. Number one was so Jerry Garcia could get acid. Then the second thing was the Allman brothers were playing on the campus and Murray wanted to ask them if he could rent out their PA for the night. And then when he, when the Allman brothers said, who is it for? And he said, the Grateful Dead, they said, well, if you let us open up for the Grateful Dead, you can have it for free. So Jerry Garcia comes back to the the station wagon and then Jerry says, uh, take me to the city's water supply. And Jerry wanted to dose the city of Atlanta. Fortunately, Murray thought better of it and they, they do not do that um but the
1: teenager uh, thought better of it
0: oh the the teenager thought that but um the good news was everybody who went to the uh to the dead show uh that sunday night in may of 1970 everybody got a tab of blotter acid
1: that sounds about right well a couple of the essays i think kelly hogan's and tom branches particularly really explored just the idea and the feeling behind running around town and stapling up flyers can you speak to that particular culture
0: back in the good old days you used to take pieces of paper and then staple them to telephone poles to get out information everybody i've talked to would say they would go on flyer patrol like they would get in the band's vehicle most of the time it was a van and then just drive around town and and staple it on any telephone pole they could. Wheat paste, staple, get the word out. I remember I was putting on a, a, a show over at the Sombra Tile in 1997, and I wheat pasted a poster at the corner of uh, North and Highland. And uh, I wheat pasted it on there and then put padding glue on top of it. Like what you do notepads on, (laughs) that poster stayed in that sarcophagus for about four years. It was quite a badge of honor at the
1: time. I'm hearing the pride. I'm definitely. Yeah,
0: well, you know, it's like you don't get to humble brag very much about flyers.
1: So, well, one flyer that caught my eye particularly and made me want to talk about a particular concept. It's a 1972 flyer from a club called the Headrest, and it features a full illustration from artist Robert Crumb. And Mm -hmm. so, I was wondering if you could speak to the fact that flyers back in the day incorporated artwork that they did not own and the artists were yes. not really giving credit
0: yeah the robert crumb illustration in question is one of his famous it's like the the eight panels of a, a face melting and so this club called the headrest on uh, Ponce, they just used this Robert Crumb illustration. Like it basically takes up the top half of the piece of paper. And I remember calling my my attorneys and saying, can I use that? And they said, it's considered fair use because it, it was published in 1972, you're fine now. But uh, one thing I wanna make sure I bring up about that particular flyer, Kim, it was actually a broadside from The Great Speckled Bird. And uh, that show was the first time that Leonard Skinnerd played Atlanta, and they drank so much beer they owed the club money. It was like something out of the Blues Brothers.
1: <laughs> and for the unfamiliar, what is the Great Speckled Bird?
0: Uh, the Great Speckled Bird uh, was an alt weekly uh, back in the late '60s and early '70s that was the pulse of the Southeast and about six months ago, I got COVID. And uh, earlier that week, one of the uh, gentlemen from the Great Speckled Bird had given me eight boxes of the Great Speckled Bird, all the issues. And while I was self-isolating, I went through every issue of the Great speckled bird. And so there are some true gems from the great speckled bird in the book.
1: That's fantastic. And what an important publication for Atlanta's history. When I look at your book, some of my absolute favorite images are the monthly club calendars that have super high detail for every show on every day of the month. There's one from artist Randy Thomas for Club Rio in March of 88. And then there's a couple from artist Mike Shulman. One's for The Point, one's for Little Five Points. Is that the same gentleman who went on to create art for the Grateful Dead in the 90s?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's my kind of guy. I like that he's got a twinkle in his eye.
1: He's an incredible artist, an absolutely artist. A incredible very incredible, artist. yeah. When I hit the part of the book that covers the 90s through 2003, I was shocked at how many of those shows I had been to and equally surprised at the emotional connection that I felt with those images. Mm. What are some of the flyers in the book that meant the most to you and why?
0: Man, to those who haven't seen the book, it's 215 pages. And it's kind of like saying which of your 215 Babies is your favorite, because each one of them moved me. So as far as like personally, it's like I wanted to communicate with everybody. Um, and so to have like Richards in the fall of 1973 with the New York Dolls and Skinnard and the Stooges all playing within the same month, I mean, that that's pretty cool. The Grateful Dead Flyer at Reynolds Town is pretty cool. Um, mastodon it under the couch i mean Mm. come on that's like a chef's kiss right there um but you know like jared from the black lips his band when he was in high school was called the renegades and the flyer of the renegades in the book is from them at five thirteen, and it is a flyer done on a disciplinary slip from when he was going to school at the time so it like when uh, when i showed it to him something that's very common with a lot of people when they see this book is they go where the? where did you find this (laughs) uh i mean david cross said that when i showed him that Knightery flyer it's like i love every last single one of them i wouldn't put it in if i didn't really feel strongly about it
1: Mm -hmm. the book includes addresses for every Mm -hmm. club mentioned and you explain that an army of sleuths helped you with this
0: there's approximately 100 venues shown on those two pages with addresses. Every line has been vetted.
1: I loved that part of the book just as much as the flyers. I, you know, grew up in Atlanta and one of the venues that historically I always heard mentioned that I missed was Alex Cooley's Electric Ballroom. It yeah. was not until reading your book that I realized that that was where the Georgian Terrace Hotel is.
0: Can you believe it? I can't speak definitively about this. Uh, Like there have been, finding every factual thing out has been difficult, but I've definitely found out that the electric ballroom becomes the Agora, which Mm -hmm. is right there across from the Fox. But the Georgian Terrace, like the basement, like they had shows back in the 60s and the 50s. And I've, I've seen proof of that as well. It's a pretty bumping spot.
1: Just to mention that in the book, Henry is very open to more information and encourages anyone that might have a different opinion of where something is or wants to share more to get in touch. So this is, this is a work in progress and we're going to see more, right?
0: yeah i'm actually working on two more books right now one on alabama but another one on the state of georgia i'm going to make in in a couple of weeks there have been again just a lot of people just generously opening up their their homes to me and allowing me to come in with my scanner and my laptop and just scan in their dining room
1: well as much as this book is about music and art it is also about preservation can you speak to your partnership with the rose library at emory
0: emory has been very very generous with me they have uh, i'm using air quotes here a punk rock archive and any hard copies i have are going to them i want this to be shared and celebrated
1: so at some point yeah. Someone can go down to Emory and look through this entire collection yes. of actual paper.
0: Uh, any any paper that I have, yes. But the, the thing that I must stress is I have 14,000 high quality digital scans, not photos, scans of everything. It's been a, a challenge, but uh, I don't know. What, what else am I doing? <laughs> but I'm having a blast.
1: Designer, editor, and publisher Henry Owings. More information about his new book, Plus One Atlanta, is on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, City Lights host Lois Reitzes celebrates the memory of longtime Atlanta symphony cellist Christopher Rex. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, and for Lois Reitzes, great to have you along. When the longtime Atlanta Symphony cellist Christopher Rex died in March, there was an international recognition of his musical achievement in numerous obituaries. Rex was known for his sweet disposition and sense of humor, along with his great talent. Atlanta Symphony Concert Master David Coucheron recently joined City Lights host Lois Wrights via Zoom, and he began by sharing his earliest impressions of Christopher Rex.
6: Well, uh, Chris Rex and I became close almost immediately after my appointment here, and I distinctly remember a conversation I had around Christmas before I started here I was in Norway, and I had just had the eye surgery, I got LASIK surgery, and I couldn't see anything. But he was very persistent in trying to get me to play at his festivals. So I had my first phone call with him from Norway, while I couldn't see anything. (laughs) Um, And I remember that uh, very, very well. And we went on to play Chibri music together, basically nonstop ever since. And there was a great connection that we had musically, but I think also human connection that uh, lasted throughout uh, our friendship. And I was really uh, devastated when he passed away earlier this spring in March.
4: Clearly the age difference didn't matter. He was more than twice your age.
6: Yeah, he was much older than me, but I never thought about that. It was like he was a... He was a jokester at heart, and I think so am I. And (laughs) I also remember specifically one time we played that Kodai duo for violin and cello, which he had played a lot with his brother, Charlie, who lives in New York, and played in in New York Philharmonic for many, many, many years. And there's a moment where the cello has a lot of 16 notes, and I'm just waiting for him to finish notes, and then I take them over. And without any warning, he just sort of Kept playing those sixteenth <laughs> notes as, the, as if they were supposed to be there, <laughs> and I just naturally burst out in laughter because I could never think of anybody who would have thought of doing that just for fun. Like there was no reason for him to do this, but he just wanted to see how, rea- how I reacted, and I just I couldn't even continue playing because I was laughing so hard. Had these like wonderful interactions in music, and I think it was music that kind of inspired our friendship. Oh. And it was just, uh, yeah, he was a musical, uh, he was a musical brother to me.
4: Oh. I heard there was a funny moment. Was this when you auditioned or you had just arrived as concertmaster with the Atlanta Symphony, where he was? coaching you or claimed to be coaching you? Tell oh, us.
6: <laughs> <laughs> I think I know what you're talking about. Yes, so we played the Ravel duo for violin and cello and I had never done it before. It's not done very often, but because of his brother playing violin, Chris had obviously played it a lot of times before. So I was just like, hey Chris, can you just teach me? Just tell me what to do here. And he kind of talked me through the whole piece because it's a very it's a complicated and, and difficult duo. We were done. I had to leave to get some water, and I came straight back. And he had found a a checkbook that I had left, and he had written a check to himself uh, for two million dollars. Uh, <laughs> and in the memo, it said "coaching fee." <laughs> and I always put that check up uh, in my in my room at the Symphony Hall, and it's still there, and it will never it will never leave. But it was kind of the jokester kind of person that oh. he was, and. And always with the sparkle, you know, twinkle in his eye. And I really, really, I really miss that. It's, it's really a, a huge loss.
4: Did he sign it? Did he sign your name, David?
6: No, he did not. <laughs> <laughs> he did not sign the name. Yeah, he, he knew where the limit was, too, I guess. <laughs> I
4: guess. Okay. So... Your sister, the wonderful pianist Julie Kushran, has said that Chris liked to think of himself as an honorary Norwegian. I didn't know this until recently. Tell us more about the Norway connection.
6: Chris was at my festival in Oslo several years, I want to say three or four times, and he was always very excited to go. And he usually stayed a little bit longer than he needed to and uh, looked around Oslo and went to Bergen and the host family he stayed with him, him became also very close. And it was around that he discovered that Oslo, the capital of Norway, used to be called Christiania. That was the old name for Oslo before it became Oslo. So he thought, oh, this is a great name for our trio because... This is where Julie and David are from, and it also contains my first name, Chris. So that's how he named our Christiania trio, which we played everywhere uh, with that name. always was very proud and very excited to explain how we arrived at that that name, but he loved being in Norway, and we also played on a couple of cruise ships as a trio, touring up and down the coast of Norway, so he became very familiar with Norway after a while, and he loved being there. And
4: how lucky he was to have you and your family as guides.
6: (laughs) Yeah, we were all very lucky.
4: David, you and Chris shared intense love for chamber music in addition to concert and orchestral music. And along with being the Atlanta Symphony principal cellist for 38 years, more than 38 years, Chris created the Amelia Island Chamber Music Festival and The Madison Chamber Music Festival. This was in addition to his role as founding member of the Georgian Chamber Players. On Friday, you and the Georgian Chamber Players are performing a concert dedicated to his memory. How will the music on that program be tribute to Chris Rex?
6: We will be playing the Mark Gresham clarinet quintet uh, which we had planned to play with Chris for many years and we finally found time to do it this spring. My sister and I will pay tribute to Chris by playing the Grieg C minor sonata which was one of his favorite sonatas and we already talked about his connection to Norway and Norwegian music and he loved Grieg. And then there's going to be the Kegelstad trio which does not have any connection. Chris. But I'm sure he would approve of us having that on the program.
4: I'm sure he would. And uh, no doubt, as a piano trio, he would be down for it. David, what aspect of his work and life do you consider the greatest legacy of Christopher
6: Rex? Well, I think his children, obviously. And I think that What he managed to do, being the leader of the cello section here in Atlanta Symphony for such a long time, is amazing. And I like to go back and listen to his concertos, his Elgar cello concerto, for instance, which he was very happy with, that he did with Donald Runnickels, along with um, how he managed to make uh, Amelia Island Chamber Music Festival the internationally recognized chamber music festival it is today is really remarkable. I, I often asked him, how did you do that? How did you do that? And I think it's his dedication to music, his dedication to quality and wonderful, amazing playing, his enthusiasm for chamber music and his charisma, I think was kind of what all came together. And with the help of the locals and Amelia, um, propelled that festival, really, to be really widely regarded as a really premier chamber music festival. When you think about the soloists and the names that he's had there, you know, Yo-Yo Ma, Yuja, Lang Lang, all this, René Fleming. I mean, it's really, really incredible. I, I just can't believe that that's possible. And that's kind of a testament to what he managed to do. He managed to do things that... People thought we were not going to be possible for him.
4: Oh, I'm, I know what a loss this yeah. is for you personally.
6: And it, it, it's strange, too, that he, to me he's not around anymore. He's always been around. And hearing Yo Yo Ma himself dedicated his encore for his concert here last month to Chris Rex and playing the Sarabande from Bach, in his memory, it's just unbelievable. I mean, when you think about that. And it it wasn't, I talked to him beforehand at a concert and he's just said he can't believe it either that he's gone. And it was just a, of course, he's playing this encore dedicating to Chris.
4: David, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for your reflections on memories of Chris. I really appreciate it.
6: Atlanta has lost a great giant in music, and uh, Chris is going to be deeply, deeply missed.
1: Atlanta Symphony Concertmaster Master David Coucheron speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. All are invited to celebrate Christopher Rex tomorrow, Friday, May 13th, for a concert dedicated to his memory at Peachtree Road United Methodist Church. More information is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Atlanta artist William Downs shares details on iDrum's new exhibition, Stars and Feelings. Plus, Camilla Alves McConaughey takes on Picky Eaters with her new children's book, Just One Bite. And the latest installment of our series, Film Crew Files, features special effects technician Carrie Foreman. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org. There you will find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights host and executive producer is Lois Reitzes. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Knavey. I'm senior producer Kim Droves, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta.